We are continuing our look at major messages from the minor prophets. I call your attention tonight to uh, the book of Zephaniah, not Zechariah. I want to make sure that you get the right one. The two, the, the two Zs. There's Zephaniah and there's Zechariah. I want us to look tonight at Zephaniah. And I invite your attention particularly to the third chapter. Uh, once again, forgive me if I'm saying something that is a repeat of what we have said in the previous weeks, but you never know who's here and who heard. Uh, we record these and we put them on our podcast. You never know who's listening. So I want to make sure that everybody has the same understanding. We're not doing a chapter by chapter, verse by verse exegesis of these prophetic books, but we're picking particular passages found within them that we think uh, highlight the major message from uh, each uh, minor prophet book. Hence, we call this series Major Messages from the Minor Prophets. The only minor prophet book that we have uh, gone through extensively is the book of Jonah. Uh, and that's because Jonah deals less with a message from God than a relationship that the prophet has with God. And, and there are certain troubling aspects of that relationship. Very, very realistic, <clears throat> excuse me, very realistic aspects, yet still very troubling aspects. We, we like to believe in a happily ever after. That's what we raise our children. We tell our children bedtime stories, fairy tales, what have you. And no matter how bad the thing might be, people getting eaten and, 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 and folk breaking into your house and all the other things that happen in these fairy tales, they always end the same way. And they lived happily ever after. And, and we raise our children uh, believing in that, hoping in that. But a reality of life is that not everything ends happily ever after. And, 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 and as that is true with other aspects of life, that's true with our spiritual aspect of life as well. And, and, and uh, with Jonah in particular, there was no happily ever after. Uh, Jonah, as the story ends, is still mad with God. And God is still asking Jonah, why are you angry? I don't want to relitigate that, but I just wanted to make the point that this is what we're trying to do, lift up major messages that can be found within the minor prophets. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, contains the major message that this prophet is giving primarily to uh, the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem, its capital in particular. Uh, one of the things that you need to look at when you have your private time uh, in studying this is that the first uh, couple of chapters of Zephaniah don't contain a message for Judah nor for the northern kingdom of Israel, but contains a message for various surrounding nations, for the Philistines, for the Moabites, for the Ammonites, for the Egyptians, called in some versions of the scripture the Cushites, for the Assyrians. And in each case, God speaks through the prophet and says, because you have done this, because you have done that, God's judgment is going to come 
upon you. It is judgment for general sinfulness, and there are certain specific abuses that were directed towards God's people. In other words, God says to these nations, because you weren't kind to my people, because you weren't kind to the people that I have set apart, that, that I have called out, there are going to be certain punishments that you will have to endure. The punishments that are listed in these chapters are swift. Within 20 years, two decades, one generation, all these lands would lay desolate under the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire was what was the chief empire of this day. And, and they were sweeping through and they were consuming these various lands. And so God starts through the prophet by giving uh, prophetic judgments against these other nations. Now, somebody ought to be thinking, why is he talking about all these other nations instead of his own people, Judah? I'm glad you asked me that question because it's a good question to ask. It's because the prophet wants to make the point and God wants to make the point that God is the God of everybody. Whether or not, you choose to worship him. Some folk think that God is only God for those who choose to worship him. No, God is, is only the Lord of your life when you choose to worship him. But the fact that you don't choose to worship God or the fact that you voluntarily choose to reject God doesn't change the fact that God is still God. Doesn't change the fact that God is still in charge. And, and, and so... God announces judgment against, he said, most of these nations that, that I just listed, the Philistines, the Moabites, Ammonites, Egyptians, Assyrians, these were polytheistic people. They were worshipers of multiple gods, none of which was Jehovah or Yahweh. And yet God announces judgment on all of them to make it clear that he is God of everybody. That's an important message for the world to know today. In America, this is the most secular time in the history of this nation. Fewer and fewer people attend worship today than at any time since that has been recorded in the history of this nation. Last statistic I saw, and somebody might have seen one more recent than the one I saw, is that church attendance is down to 38% across this nation. Flip that number over. 62% of the people in this nation don't attend worship on a regular basis. Now, somebody's going to say, well, the fact that I don't go to church doesn't mean that I don't believe in God. You might believe in God, but you sure ain't serving him. Because service involves a connection with his church. We've had this discussion before. Can I worship the Lord from my living room? Yes, but it's not the maximum worship that you can do. He calls for us to link ourselves with one another. In fact, he says it ain't even got to be a whole bunch. Where two or three, particularly good for a night like tonight when I'm looking out at two or three, for where two or three are gathered in my name, Touching and agreeing. I am there in the midst. So it is clear 
that God's intention for us is to find ways to worship collaboratively with one another. And yet America is moving more and more towards secularization. We don't go to worship anymore. Let me make it clear. You can stay at home every Sunday that you want to. Don't change the fact that God is still God. You can be mad at God because of something he did in 1976. And you never got over it. God is still God. Somebody's mad because their marriage dissolved. Somebody's mad because their children uh, failed and, and didn't do everything that they were supposed to do. Somebody's mad because somebody died and they didn't want them to die. And they're still mad with God about it. Does not change the fact that God is still God. And so it's important for us to recognize that God announces this judgment against these other nations because it's an indicator that he is the Lord of all. Yet in chapter 3, he turns his attention toward Judah and Jerusalem because Judah and Jerusalem represent God's chosen people, God's special people, the people with whom he had a unique relationship. Listen to what he says to these people. Doom to the rebellious city, the home of oppressors, sewer city, the city that wouldn't take advice, wouldn't accept correction, wouldn't trust God, wouldn't even get close to her own God. Her very own leaders are rapacious lions. Her judges are rapacious timber wolves, out every morning prowling for a fresh kill. Her prophets are out for what they can get. They're opportunists. You can't trust them. Her priests desecrate the sanctuary. They use God's law as a weapon to maim and kill souls. Yet God remains righteous in her midst, untouched by the evil. He stays at it day after day, meeting out justice. At evening, he's still at it, strong as ever. But evil men and women, without conscience and without shame, persist in evil. So, I cut off the godless nations. I knocked down their defense posts filled her roads with rubble so no one could get through. Her cities were bombed out ruins, unlivable and unlived in. I thought, surely she'll honor me now, accept my discipline and correction, find a way of escape from the trouble she's in, find relief from the punishment I'm bringing. But it didn't phase her. Bright and early, she was up at it again, doing the same old thing. Well, if that's what you want, stick around. God's decree. Your day in court is coming. But remember, I'll be there to bring evidence. I'll bring all the nations to the courtroom, round up all the kingdoms, and let them feel the brunt of my anger, my raging wrath. My zeal is a fire that will purge and purify the earth. In the end, I will turn things around for the people. I'll give them a language undistorted, unpolluted, 
words to address God in worship and united to serve me with their shoulders to the wheel. They'll come from beyond the Ethiopian rivers. They'll come praying. All my scattered exiled people will come home with offerings for worship. You'll no longer have to be ashamed of all those acts of rebellion. I'll have gotten rid of your arrogant leaders. No more pious strutting on my holy hill. I'll leave a core of people among you who are poor in spirit. What's left of Israel, that's really Israel. They'll make their home in God. This core holy people will not do wrong. They won't lie, won't use words to flatter or seduce. Content with who they are and where they are, unanxious, they'll live at peace. So sing, daughter Zion. Raise the rafters, Israel. Daughter Jerusalem, be happy. Celebrate. All right. If you notice, there is a shift between verses 1 through 8 and verses 9 through 14. In verses 1 through 8, God lays out his case for judgment against his people. In verses 9 through 14, and really it goes on a little bit farther than verse 14, we stop at verse 14. God announces that after judgment, there will be restoration for a righteous remnant. So let's start with the negative. Let, let, let's start with the judgment. And let's see why the judgment is to be brought. Specifically, God levies four charges at Judah and Jerusalem. Charge number one, they wouldn't take advice. On Sinai, God gave commands regarding how his people were to live. That's when Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and they made their way to Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up into the mountain and he stays there for 40 days and God gives him his law and they were expected to follow that law. So they could not say that they did not know what God wanted. In fact, God's word was codified. We commonly call it the Ten Commandments. That, you know, you, 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 you boil down all of that law down to ten things. So, so you can't say that you didn't know. You can't say that I did not advise you as to what I wanted and to what I expected. What you can say is that you wouldn't listen to what I told you. You chose to ignore me and do what you wanted to do. Because of this disregard, God says that they would experience wrath and trouble and distress and destruction and desolation and darkness and gloom. They wouldn't take advice. Number two, he says you wouldn't accept correction. And I want you to notice that each one builds on the other. First, you wouldn't take advice. Now he says, you won't take correction. This is a reference to refusing discipline. This means not just receiving it, 
but responding to it. Has anybody ever had to discipline somebody, maybe a teacher in a classroom, maybe a, 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 an employee if you own a business or you supervise people? Have you ever had to discipline somebody? You brought them in, you sat them down, you explained to them what it is that you were doing and why it is that you were doing it, and you let them know what your expectations are from this point forward now that we've had this wonderful conversation and you understand me and I understand you, I expect you to proceed from here doing better than you did before. And they say, okay, and they walk right out the door and they go right back to doing what they were doing before. That's what he's referring to here. He says, I gave you advice, I gave you instruction, I gave you my expectation, and you wouldn't accept correction. I told you what the consequences were for failing to do what, what, what I have asked you to do, and yet you continue to do it Anyway, third, he says, they wouldn't trust God. And it's the third thing that builds on the previous two. You won't take his advice, and you won't respond to his correction because basically you don't trust God. And you're sitting in here saying, well, if I don't trust God, then who do I trust? That's your problem. You trust you. Most people trust themselves more than they trust God. And trusting yourself is a bad way to live. Can I tell you that you ain't trustworthy? Can, can I tell you that, 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 that you are guilty of saying one thing and doing something else? Can I remind you that when you woke up this morning, and I wasn't there, but I'm sure I'm right. When you woke up this morning, you had in mind what you were going to do and what you weren't going to do. And you did the things you said you weren't going to do, and you failed to do the things that you said you were going to do. Paul speaks for all of us when he says, when I would do good, evil is present on every hand. He says, it's not a matter of not knowing. He says, I know what I should do, and I choose to do something else. I know what I should refrain from doing, but I keep on doing it anyhow. What can explain this kind of irrational, illogical behavior? You simply don't trust God as much as you trust you. we get on our knees or we get into our praying posture, whatever your praying posture is, because I'm finding as you get older, getting on your knees is a harder and harder thing to do. Whatever your praying posture is, you talk to the Lord and you tell the Lord, I'm putting this Lord in your hands. I, I'm trusting you to take care of this. For Let Jesus fix it for you. We love to sing that. And then we say, in Jesus' name. You know, we got to put a little special emphasis on Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. And then before we can get up from our prayer, we're already trying to figure out how we're going to fix what we say we have put 
in God's hands. It's an indicator that we don't trust God. When we say, I don't see how that's going to happen, it's an indicator that we don't trust God. When we say, it's never happened that way before, it's an indication that we don't trust God. God is not limited by what our past experience is. God is not confined by those things that confine you and me. So it's very important that we recognize and appreciate the fact that if we are to take God's advice and accept his correction, we have to trust him even when we don't understand what he's doing, even when what he does doesn't seem right to us. Because if we're honest with ourselves, and, 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 and I'm talking to mainly old folk in here. I got some young people in here, and I ain't talking about the young at heart. But, 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 but if we're honest with ourselves, God does some stuff that we don't like. God allows certain things that we think are wrong. If we were sitting across the table from God, we'd say stuff to God, now you know that wasn't right. I don't know what got in your mind that you would allow that to happen or this to happen or the other to happen. Because we think we know better than God knows. The third complaint is that they would not trust God. Fourth complaint is that they wouldn't get close. Well, how can you really trust somebody that you won't get close to? That's why I said it, it, each one builds on top of the They wouldn't take advice. They wouldn't accept correction. They wouldn't trust God. And they wouldn't get close. You can't trust somebody that you won't get close to. You can know people from a distance, but it's different than knowing them up close. Do you remember, because I know just about everybody in here has high-definition televisions now. Do, do, do you remember when there was no such thing as a high-definition television? Do, do, do you remember when everything was in black and white? And, 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 and what you saw were just images. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. When you looked at those pictures, you saw an image. But, 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 but the image wasn't as, it was as clear as you thought it could possibly be. But as television technology changed, the pictures got clearer and clearer and clearer. And now you have these TVs where you can see every mole, every freckle, every bump, dandruff in their hair. If they didn't floss their teeth, you can see that. You can see everything. It's what happens when you get close. These pictures that, that you see now on television, they're a whole lot clearer because they let you get a whole lot closer 
than you ever got. Have you, Ladies and men, have you ever seen a figure from a distance? And you say, ooh, they sure do look good. And the closer they got, and the closer they got, and the closer they got, and it went from ooh to ooh, ooh. what happens when you get close. When you get close, you see things that you didn't see from a distance. When you get close, you have experiences that you didn't have from a distance. Most people in here will say, I don't have many friends. I have just a few friends. I have acquaintances. I know people, but I have very few friends. What's the distinction between an acquaintance and a friend? It's distance. It's how close you allow yourself to get to that individual. Well, when you sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. You're saying something about the status of your relationship. You're saying that you're close. You're saying that I know him as well as I can know anyone, and he knows everything about me. Now, let's be clear. You ain't going to ever know everything about the Lord on this side. Paul says, now we see through a glass darkly. Then we shall see face to face. Then is when you get over to the other side. Now I know in part. Then I shall know even as I am also known. You're never going to see everything, but the closer you get to him, the more you know about him. And it is the closeness that allows you to trust him. See, if you get in trouble, real trouble, you ain't calling an acquaintance. You're calling a friend. If you find that you have a need at 2 o'clock in the morning, you ain't calling an acquaintance. You're calling a friend. Friendship implies closeness. Friendship says it's okay to call it too. Because that's my friend. God says, I got four problems with y'all. Number one, you won't take my advice. Number two, you won't accept my correction. Number three, you won't trust me. And number four, you won't get close. So how is it that we can say that we have a real relationship with God if we won't get close to God? It's a pretend relationship. It's not what we really want it to be. Somebody in here has somebody who, who, who calls you their pretend sister or their pretend brother. That's my play brother. That's my play sister. When they say that to you, they're trying to imply that there's a closeness there. Here's the thing. You might not feel as close to them as they feel to you. They're always calling you my play brother, but you, you don't ever say that back to them because you don't feel 
that degree of closeness. What's my point? My point is God is expressing hurt feelings because he said, I tried to bring you close to me. And the more I try to bring you close, the farther from me you go. The more you do your thing instead of what I ask you to do. The prophet says that the problem starts with the leadership. Her very own leaders are rapacious lions. Her judges are rapacious timber wolves out every morning prowling for a fresh kill. That speaks to the realm of civic authority. He's saying that there is corruption within civic authority. And somebody's going to say, well, civic authority is always corrupt. Ain't nothing new about that. Well, keep on reading. Her prophets are out only for what they can get. Well, now he's flipped the script. He ain't talking about civic authority no more. He's talking about church leadership. He's talking about rev. He's talking about pastor. He's talking about the church leadership. He's saying, they ain't right out there, and they ain't right in here. He calls them a particular thing. He calls them opportunists. What is an opportunist? In Exodus chapter 21 and 8, the same term is used, opportunist. It is used there to describe a master's dealing with a female slave whom he has intended to take as a wife. If the master found her unsatisfactory, he was to allow her to be redeemed, not sold off to foreigners. These prophets, however, were selling out the nation. I got blessings to give if you pay me $19.95. In fact, I got prayer clothes that I'll send to you. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. We, 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 we took it to our special prayer room, and we laid hands on each cloth, and we prayed over and we're going to send these prayer calls to you. And that's going to serve as your point of contact. I know all the language. It's going to serve as your point of contact between our ministry and you and the Lord. And when you get your prayer call, you put that prayer call on the part of your body that hurts. You lay that prayer call on your bank account. And watch how God is going to change you. Watch how God is going to bless you. Yes, sir. Oh, really? That's one I hadn't seen yet. I told you all about the time that uh, years and years and years ago, I was at a car dealership. I was looking at, 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 high-end foreign cars. I, it was either BMW or Mercedes. And I, and I was just, I ain't had nothing else to do, so I went out there and, and I was looking. 
I was looking at the cars. But I noticed on the cars, the, the dealership had put a sign on the top of the cars. And the sign said, please do not put oil on the cars. Apparently, folk had been coming by the dealership with oil that had been blessed and sanctified. And they were slinging oil on the cars, claiming them in the name of Jesus. It's a problem. Opportunists, predators. He says rapacious lions and rapacious wolves. That's the civic authority. He says the church folk are simply opportunists. They're, they're looking to use their church position to their own personal advantage. Well, when there is corruption on the outside and corruption on the inside, you got a real problem. And God says, in spite of the corruption, I blessed them anyway. Yet God remains righteous in her midst, untouched by the evil. He stays at it day after day, meeting out justice at evening. He's still at it, strong as ever. But evil men and women without conscience and without shame persist in evil. So I cut off godless nations, and I knocked down their defense posts and filled their roads with rubble so that no one could get out and no one could get through. Her cities were bombed out, ruins, unlivable and unlived in. And I thought, this is, this is God talking to, 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 to us, I thought, surely, if I do all of this good stuff towards you, you're going to change your way. Have you ever been good to somebody? And it seems like the better you are to them, the worse they are to you. Have you ever put yourself out for somebody? Have you ever extended yourself farther than you said you were going to? Have you ever said, this is the last time I'm going to do this? Ain't going to do it no more. You just taking advantage of me, and I ain't going to let you do it no more. And yet, when they call, something pricks your heart, and you do it anyway. And inside your heart, you're thinking, surely, this time, they'll see it. Surely, this time, they'll treat me better. They'll even lie to you and sweet talk you. Don't nobody treat me like you do. You the best thing that's ever happened to me. And yet, they continue to mistreat and abuse you in spite of how good you have been to them. That's what God is describing here of Judah and Jerusalem. As good as I have been to you, as kind as I have been to you, as compassionate as I have been to you, as provisional as I have been to you, as, as protective as I have been of you, in spite of my goodness, you continue to mistreat me time 
after time, after time, after time. The point that, 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 that God wants you to see through the prophet is there is no comparison between the character of God and our character. God has a character that is without flaw, that is without blemish. And it's important that you see God for who he is. Because it's only when you see God for who he is that you have the real opportunity to see you for who you are. And, and not who you want him to be and not who you think you are. Isaiah chapter 6 says that when Uzziah died, I, I, I mark it by the year Uzziah died. When, when, when Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high, lifted up, trained, filled the temple. The majesty of what I saw was magnificent. Words are indescribable for what I saw. I saw angels flying around him, going back and forth, and they sang as they went back and forth around him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. He spoke with such power that when he spoke, the doorposts of the temple shook. And when I saw God, Isaiah says, I saw myself. The only way you can really see who you are is to see who God is. Our problem, and the reason why we trust more in us than we do in God, and the reason why we think we're more than we actually are, is because we spend our time comparing us to other us's. And as long as you're just comparing you to other you's, there's going to always, you're going to always come out well. Because you can always find something wrong with somebody. But I dare you to find something wrong with God. I challenge you to find something wrong with God. For as high as the heaven is above the earth, that's how far above us God is. From everlasting. To everlasting, thou art God. So, so, there's no, when you see him, you can't help but look at you. And when Isaiah looked at him, he said, woe is me. I'm a wretch undone. You want to know where, 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 where the song Amazing Grace gets the word wretch from? It gets it from right there. It's from right there. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Paul calls himself a wretch. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall save me? About, about 20 years ago, they took the word worm out of the song at the cross. The, 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 the more contemporary uh, uh, hymn books switched the word worm out. And they put in sinner. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, did my sovereign die, would he devote that sacred head for sinners 
such as I. I like worm. Since I brought up rich, I just thought I'd go there. I like worm. Because you know what, 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 what worms dig around in? Dust. Dirt. Mud. And where'd you come from? Y'all like reading Genesis, right? Y'all, y'all, y'all know where y'all came from, right? Says God stepped onto the earth, stepped out of heaven, stepped onto the earth, and, 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 and took some dirt, took some dust, and formed man. So if he formed us out of dust, I ain't got no problem with him calling me a worm. Because worms play in the dirt. We just playing with our kinfolk, that's all. It's for sinners such as I. I got, I got mad when I saw that. And that, that. That ain't what the word is. For such a worm as I. You've got to see him in order to see yourself. And when you see yourself, you have to acknowledge that there was always a problem with us, yet God continues in his steadfast love and goodness toward us in spite of our shortcomings. And what that says to us is that we have to be careful not to confuse God's mercy, God's protection, and God's provision with a lack of concern about sin. God is patient, but it doesn't mean he's unconcerned. God sees everything you do. We, we, we preach Sunday about Peter denying Jesus in the courtyard. And, and it says when he denied him the third time and the rooster crowed, said, Jesus, turn and looked right at Peter. You think God don't know what you're doing? You think God doesn't see you? in your low-down, no-good, nasty self? God knows. He's patient. He withholds. But withholding doesn't mean he doesn't know. Withholding only means that he's trying to give you a chance to get better. But as sure as there is a heaven and a hell, If there is no change, if there is no repentance, if there is no conversion, patience runs out. And when patience runs out, you see another side to God. Well, if that's what you want, stick around. Your day in court is coming. But remember, I'll be there to bring the evidence. I ain't sending no junior leaguer. I I ain't sending no novice who ain't never been to court before. I'm going to show up myself, and I'm going to bring the evidence. I'm going to bring all the other folk into the courtroom, and they're going to line up, and they're going to tell the story. Justice withheld is not justice ignored. Mm -hmm. 
all of us relish in the fact that God loves us in spite of our sin. That, that, that's our claim. That's our testimony. I ain't been right, and God knows I ain't been right, but God blessed me anyhow. Well, that doesn't mean that justice ain't coming. I've told y'all before, doesn't happen much anymore, because don't go out here and say he did it again. But, but I used to get a whole lot of speeding tickets. And when I got a speeding ticket, I ain't never put up a fuss. In fact, when, when, when I saw the sirens behind me, I just pulled right on over. And before he could get out the car, I had the license, I had the registration, I had the insurance, I had the window rolled down, I had my hand out with all the stuff in it that I knew he was going to ask for. And before he could ask me, do you know how fast you go? I was knowing about 75 and a 50 mile zone. That, that wasn't arrogance. That was just an acknowledgement for all the hundreds of other times when I could have got stopped, when I should have got stopped, and I wasn't stopped. I just figured, okay, it's my turn today. When stuff happens to you, stop whining and complaining. Why would God let this happen to me? Do a, do, do a mental review of your life. And don't count all the troubles. Count all the troubles that should have been, that weren't. Count all the stuff that you know you got away with because you looked around before you did it. Nobody sees me. You whisper so that nobody can hear you. And then when you do it, you get away as fast as you can. I wasn't nowhere near it. We get away with all kinds of stuff. So, so, so justice withheld is not justice ignored. We should always be aware of the fact that for those who tarry in their decision to serve the Lord, there will come a time when mercy will give way to justice. And you need to be prepared for that. Verse 9, everything changes. I got 13 minutes. In the end, I will turn things around for the people. I'll give them a language, undistorted, unpolluted, words to address God in worship and united to serve me with their shoulders to the wheel. They'll come up from beyond the Ethiopian rivers. They'll come praying. All my scattered exile people will come home with offerings for worship. If you don't get anything else, you get that because that's the main passage. That's the main verse in this section. He says, I will give them three things, all beginning with you. I like assonance and alliteration. Assonance is when you link up vowels together. Alliteration is when you link up consonants together. So he lists undistorted, unpolluted, and united. That's assonance. I like that. He says, I'm going to give them a language. 
that is undistorted. What is an undistorted language? Well, you need to go back in your Old Testament ancient Hebrew history and realize how language got distorted in the first place. You ever read the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis? Bible says that before that, everybody understood one another. They all spoke one language. And in that one language, they decided that they were going to build a tower that reached from earth to heaven. And God let them work on the tower till the tower was almost finished. And it wasn't until it was almost finished that God stepped down and said, let me see what y'all been doing. And when he looked at what they were doing, he held a cosmic conversation with himself. And he said, if this is what the man has done, as he speaks one language, then nothing will be withheld from him. And the Bible says in response, God confused their language. And in the confused language, he scattered them one from, remember that scattered part. He scattered them so that they went to the four corners of the earth. It's the scripture's way of trying to describe how we got all these different nations and all these different regions and all these different cultures and ethnicities. That's, that's the point of this. But he says, in that day of reunion, you'll be brought back to an undistorted language. You'll be brought back to speaking one language. Have you ever read Acts chapter 2? The Bible says that when the Holy Spirit came upon all the believers, when, when the cloven tongues of fire fell on each one of the apostles, when the sound of the rushing wind filled the room, that they began to speak and the people who heard them speak, heard them in their own native language. Now, somebody's going to read this and say he's talking about speaking in tongues. That ain't speaking in tongues. What happened on Pentecost is not speaking in tongues. Read the text. It says they spoke in one language and the people heard them in their own language native language so that the true miracle was not the miracle of the speaking it was the miracle of the hearing there was unity in what they heard but the language is undistorted God who can distort is also God who can take distortions away it's a reminder that 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 while judgment will come, judgment doesn't last forever. The psalmist says he's slow to anger. Not that he doesn't get angry. He's slow to anger. But then he's quick to say on the back end of that, he's plenteous in mercy. And an undistorted language means that everybody can understand one another. That's mercy. And if we can all understand one another, then we can all understand him. Undistorted. Then he says, unpolluted. It, 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 it's one thing for it to be undistorted, but if it's undistorted and yet polluted, you still ain't got nothing. What is polluted? 
defiled, dirty, unclean, unhealthy. So what is unpolluted, undefiled, clean, healthy, helpful? So that not only is the word undistorted, not only can you hear everything, but everything you hear is good for you. Everything you hear is helpful to you. Everything you hear is beneficial to you. Everything you hear helps you to grow. And then the third you is united. He will bring people in from scattered places. And I'm not talking about scattered geographically. I'm talking about scattered spiritually. We're scattered spiritually. Even in God's church, we're scattered spiritually. Want to know how I know? If I start right up here with Lakeisha and ask, what's the most important thing to you about the church? Lakeisha would say one thing. And by the time I got over here to Jesse on the back end over here, he'd be saying something else. And I'd have about 30 different answers in between. Because we don't agree on what's the most important thing. Somebody's going to try to be pious and say, to love the Lord with all your heart and all your... But, 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 but when I get past the piety, the false piety, and ask you what, you, what do you really think is important? What do you really think is the priority? What do you really think the church ought to be about? Y'all will have all different kinds of answers. We're not united. We're in the same place. But there's a whole difference between being in the same place and being united. God doesn't just want us in the same place. He wants us to have singleness of mind and singleness of heart. And that can't happen just by you. That requires divine intervention. So the whole point of the back end of this is that after God announces judgment, after God gives the reason for the judgment, he comes back and says, in spite of the judgment that you deserve, when judgment is over, I'm going to make you one. In me, you will be one. And once you are in me, you will speak undistorted, you will speak unpolluted, and you will behave united. And that's a major word from a minor prophet. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. If there is one, we invite you to come. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I Repeat after me, please. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Y'all have a good evening.